Hi everyone, and welcome to a special two-part episode of Paddock Chat, a West Midlands Group original podcast created to keep local growers in the loop without having to leave the paddock. My name is Simon Kruger, and I am the Graduate Communications Officer at West Midlands Group. In this episode, Nathan Craig sat down with Mark Seymour and Hamahinda Damu from the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development to talk about yield and weed control considerations in chickpeas. This will be a special two-part episode, so be sure to download and listen to part two, which is available right now. So let's get down to it. To chickpea or not to chickpea? That is the question. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and may not be wholly appropriate for your purposes or situation. We recommend that you seek appropriate professional advice before implementing actions based on the information provided in this podcast. So today we want to talk a little bit about chickpeas and their kind of fit, what we've observed last year across many of the trial sites and what better way to do that is to talk to Mark Seymour and Harmahinda Damu from Deepherd. Um, so, you know, welcome, welcome, Mark, for a start. Can you give a little bit of a background on where you're based and your role and your career today? Okay, yeah, well, I work for Deepherd down in Esperance. I've been here for over 30 years, so uh, and doing a similar sort of a job. So, we're always mostly worked on break crops, so lupins and all the uh, pulse crops from faber bean, field pea, vetch, lentils, chickpeas, narbon beans, lathrus. I've been through all the ups and downs. And in recent years, being uh, about 10 years ago, I started working on canola, but been back for about four or five years on pulses and having a few wins in, say, the lentils for the Esperance area, but not so much anywhere else. Faber beans in the south. And I guess the great white hope is what we're talking about today is chickpeas for WA. We think they've got a long-term fit. So, and and that's part of the the discussion that West Midlands Group have been working with chickpeas for the last few years. And as you say, there's a hope that you know there, there is a bit of a light there. We just got to help you know de- we'll develop the the agronomy and I guess getting getting the fit right in the farming system as well. So like everything, there's always lots of questions still to answer. So, Harmi, could you give us a little bit of a background on on, on your role within within Deeper? Uh, Nathan, I have been with the department since 1997, and um, my I am actually in the crop protection area uh, within the grains and uh, directorate of Deeper. Uh, since 2000, I am based at Northam. And I was mainly dealing with the GRDC funder projects on herbicide tolerance of new varieties of cereal pulses and lupins. And that actually continued up to 2015. And 2015 onwards, actually, I am working with Mark on break crops and also on high value pulses crops. And also have a small project on looking at glyphosate alternatives for summer weed control and preceding uh, knockdown herbicide area because glyphosate is actually now under radar and we may lose it. And if that happens, what options we have? So I'm looking actually in that uh, in that small project. Yeah, cool. And um, I know that uh, comes up from time to time is, you know, what happens when uh, we do get restrictions on glyphosate. So yeah, that's um, right. as we go forward in the future, um, yeah, we might even chat again about that. We'll start off first with 
I guess why we're why we're talking about chickpeas at the moment. You know, one of the things I've seen from a West Midlands point of view is they just seem to yield each year, which is kind of surprising me, especially in some of the deeper sands. And so I just thought we'd check in with Mark um, just to see what you've seen. You know, what sort of yields did you get last year compared to? I guess, more of the average across WA and, you know, what seems to be performing and where, as you've partly alluded to already. Yeah, well, it's a big state, WA, so it's hard to generalise, but I'll probably work north and look down to where I live. We do experiments for many years in the Geraldton Port Zone, quite a lot around Minyu, and most years we're getting, you know, one and a half plus tonnes per hectare in that sort of environment. Now, last year they had a little bit, did get actually a bit too wet at one stage. So they were about 1.9 in uh, the best of the plots in the uh, trials there. So sort of, you know, a lot of one and a half to two tonnes. And I think Harmo will talk about some of these herbicide trials that he's done there as well. But So they're pretty reliable in that part of the world. It's probably one of the best places in Australia to grow chickpeas. We'd like to see more people growing them there, but they, they had to compete with canola, which does pretty well and did very well in the coolest spring last year up there. So if we move further south, we always, in the last five years, we've always been at Dow Wallanew with the Levy Group and a range of yields there over the years. So we've had some low yields, you know, the half less than half a tonnes in the years where, well, you know, the trials were surrounded by people who were fallowing paddocks, so there really was a big signal not to do anything, which, you know, may have been the best choice. But last year was pretty good. The year before was even better. We were getting... Close to three tonnes, but last year about the one and a half tonnes per hectare at Dow Wallanier. We had trials at Cunderdon, which we're probably a little bit disappointed about. I think we ran into when everyone else was benefiting from a cool spring, the chickpeas weren't in that environment and then they ran out of water. So they weren't really setting pods until well into October. And then by then it was starting to run out of moisture. So the crop would have looked like it should have gone two plus tonnes and it only went one tonne. And then we get right down to where I live, down in Esperance, we had trials, quite a few. We do the help the chickpea breeder out by doing one of her stage threes. That was probably one of the better ones that was sown a bit later. And in our environment, sowing early, well, I think we'll talk about that in a minute, but for us it doesn't always work out because we're so cold. They don't set pods, they tend to forage chickpeas. So, you know, the best of our stuff is one and a half tonnes per hectare. Our soils are probably not as good as a lot of WA4 chickpeas, but we're running into issues. So, you know, one and a half is pretty good. And again, they really set pods quite late. So sort of a range. Uh, you know, if you talk about, we really see the central north area. So, if, you know, particularly from Mora north uh, as chickpeas central in our minds because they like the warmth. We need to get better cold tolerance for them to really work reliably in the south. They will. But we, are they competitive is the thing when you can grow very good alternative crops, including canola, and the cereals are so good, getting chickpeas in there is a little bit tougher. Yeah, and that's uh, you know something we've seen you know, in our West Midlands trials the last few years. I know that West Midlands has been more sand plain and, and you know, sand soil-based, but you know, growing chickpeas over here, they seem to actually they keep surprising me. I, I look for them to uh, fall over and... I'll have to hang my head in shame, but each year they kind of come through and kind of what we've found, particularly 
with an early seeding, so middle of April, it's really, you know, it increases the yields and, and pretty well every year in our data, it, it doubles the yield. So, you know, we seem to be getting around that two tonne the hectare chickpea yield. You kind of alluded to it again there around, you know, what have you seen in terms of you know, other areas for time of sowing and you know, mm. things like that? Yeah, we tend to say it's a relatively flat response. I mean, I'm, I'm heartened by some of your recent examples where sowing early has led to more yield. I guess our experiences previous to, you know, the current run of chickpeas is that uh, around the Anzac Day was as good as it got in one trial up at Minyanyu sort of area and the rest of the state, uh, you were better off waiting till May. And again, in my area, like last year, we had the 1st of April sown, 15th of April, middle of May and the first week of June and the, the middle of May was double the yield for chickpeas of the, the earlier sowing. So it really comes down to where you are, how it reacts. As I said, if you sow really early in our environment, you have them flowering in June. They just have bought flowers for three months. They turn into a forage chickpea. They run their race, then it finally gets warm enough and they're thinking about maturing. So, you know, yeah. in the long run, we need cold tolerance and we probably need longer maturity type of varieties for, uh, for, for going out very early. I mean, that's, that was me doing a trial. Um, I would never tell anyone to sow chickpeas the 1st of April in this part of the world. And I've certainly proven why not to do it. But a very big state. So what we can't generalise. So uh, I think that to be what you guys have done, what others have done with certain experiences, learn from them and go, this is this is where it works. Again, it proves the value of doing experiments in newer areas and revisiting things because things do change. Yeah, I guess we've seen a similar experience with the West Midlands region as well that, yeah, you get them in early and they start sowing by the middle of June, uh, start flowering, sorry, by the middle of June if you sow them in the middle of April. And then sometimes they stop flowering when it gets cold and other times they don't. And, and yeah, they don't set any pods, but in our environment, they seem to start flowering again when the day length gets longer. And the thing I like about them is that the, the absolute day that they can start setting a pod, they do. And quite often that could be kind of a week or 10 days before lupins start flowering. So you can actually get some earlier pods or really extend that flowering window and they just seem to keep going on and on and on. Mm. So whether that's the the heat because it's it's cold here but it's really not that cold yeah. um so yeah it's just interesting to see how the how they behave across you know different parts of the state it's in terms of varieties mark is there uh-huh. where what what are your thoughts around you know varietal selection is there any standouts or oh well we're pretty happy with the new one cba captain even if it doesn't yield more than say striker in a lot of experiments, it's on par or just behind or sometimes just in front. It's just the height of it. The pods being higher mean that on a broad acre practice, you're more likely to get them. And it certainly seems to pay off, particularly in the lower rainfall areas, um, probably where it shines, both from its, even though it's a later variety, it seems to, you know, at the low end of yield, it seems to be better than some of the others. Certainly, if you're growing Genesis 836, and a lot of people stuck with that because it was tall, it's a really obvious choice to get captain because you'll get better yields with the height, probably a better height in our observations as well. So it's a good variety, I think. There's, the pleasing thing, I think, is that there's more to come that are tall. I mean, it's been a real focus for 
uh, Christy Hobson's New South Wales DPI program, you know, a lot of effort into Ascochyta resistance, which is, you know, there's still room for improvement, but uh, a big emphasis on getting taller lines, and you can see that in the breeding, which is good to see. You get up north and some people have quite big furrows and uh, the pods are only just above the top of the furrow, top of the ridge. So, uh, yeah, it really does help with that. I don't think there's anything really coming through in the next few years that's going to outshine Captain. We certainly, you know, already mentioned some things we'd like to see improve, but, yeah, I think we're going to be with Captain for a few years. Yeah, yeah we've seen a, a difference in harvest height this year between, uh, you know, from last season between Captain and, and Striker. And I think this year was the first year that, you know, pretty well our, our hand harvest cuts were the same as the, the harvester, the mechanical harvester cuts were very close. So, you know, really it's a good increase and something we've been kind of wary of and trying to work on in our farming system is how to yeah. reduce reduce the harvest losses and get more in. So taller varieties yeah. are always good. So, yeah, I guess last week... Okay. Sorry, I was going to say it's probably worth saying that there's no improvement in the ascochyta resistance of Captain compared to Striker. We do always stress the point that you have to have a pretty robust approach with fungicides with all chickpeas until you prove me otherwise that you don't need to do anything. It's the seed dressing, pea pickle tea is mandatory. Yep. And we've shown many times that you do inoculation methods well it won't have a negative effect on your nodule count and your nodulation. So um, that's sort of mandatory. Hopefully when you buy the seed, it's already treated. And uh, an early spray, that spray at six to eight weeks and maybe earlier if you're in a very rapid area, rapid growing area. And it seems counterintuitive to spray the plants when they're so small and there's a lot of bare earth compared to the plants. But in with both the seed dressing and that early spray, we're really just trying to knock the disease right back and have it at a very low level in your crop or make it um, zero because it does just tend to start in your crop and grow out. And very rarely do you go in and you can see that it's come from the outside. So you're breeding your own ascochyta in there and if you can just stop that early on, then you can play the season from that point on. And if you've got a very good season and it's going on and, and all your seed crop, and you do that pod wash spray, but otherwise you, that might be all you have to do. You know, and yes, there's you have to lock that in uh, for I think for everywhere, and you got to see if that will work on your farm cost wise. But otherwise, we just see people have really unfortunate experiences. You go out there, and a couple of recent experiences last couple of years where they just haven't done those things, and their crops decimated. You go one kilometre up the road where someone's done the right thing, and it's perfect. And in some instances. They think they can spray later. We've already built up the disease in your, in your paddock. And then what happened, like last year, we got very wet and some people just couldn't get on their paddock to do the spraying. So the disease is getting worse. But if they'd done the treatments earlier, they probably wouldn't have had a problem at all. Yeah. It's it got people to have good experiences straight up. Yeah, it's, it's definitely had, you know, making sure you, you do pencil the, the fungicides into the calendar because once, once you've got it, it's, it's hard to get rid of it and, yeah, you're better off starting from zero. Yeah. So seems we've kind of moved a little bit on, onto the agronomy side. We might kind of move off and move across and talk to Harmahinder about, you know, some of the work he's been doing in you know, looking at the herbicide packages or, or the, the herbicide side of things because it's a, a question we get off asked a lot by farmers is you know can i control the weeds and what weed control options are there in chickpeas so harmo can you give us a little bit of a an outline of kind of the work you've been doing over the last couple of years and and in what areas 
Okay, in chickpeas, nothing, um, as you know, you know, slow early growth of chickpeas makes chickpeas a poor competitor against weeds, and weeds can reduce yield, quality, and also can create problems during harvesting. So keeping in that mind, and with a new variety, we did two trials last year, and 2019, we did some herbicide tolerance trials on different varieties of chickpeas. Uh, as you know, in chickpeas, we have a range of herbicides registered for weed control. In pre-emergent uh, sort of area, like uh, incorporated by seeding, we have 18 herbicides registered on chickpeas. And eight of uh, out of 18, eight, they are more, mainly focusing on grass weeds and rest maybe broadleaf weeds and broad and grass weeds together. And then we have a 10 post-seeding pre-emergent herbicides registered on chickpeas. And there's a common herbicide between IBS and PSPE application in chickpeas. But the trouble, we have only one registered and available herbicide on chickpeas is a fluvimetzolum, which is group B, uh, commonly brand name is Broad Strike or similar products. So th- that is actually maybe give you suppression of uh, wild radish, cave weed and double Gs, but gives control of marshmallows and Indian hedge mustard. And then we have around about six grass selective herbicide post-emergent, which are registered on chickpeas, but they're all from group A herbicides. Luckily, if you have a group A resistant dry grass or other grass weeds, very good. If not, then I think a very limited choice. And then on chickpeas, uh, we have a for desiccation or harvest as a harvest aid. Uh, we have a registration of, you know, three, four chemicals like dicoid is available, glyphosate and sulfufenso or sharpen, for example, and in mixture with glyphosate and uh, paracoid. So those sort of you know options are available for desiccation. However, uh, for crop topping in chickpeas, that is not recommended because when we start to target the we like ryegrass growth stage, which is optimum for crop topping, maybe that's too early for chickpeas, even for the short maturing or short season varieties for chickpeas, and we can get a lot of you know crop damage or yield loss. So yes, we don't have a crop topping option and chickpeas, but we have a range of pre-margin herbicides and uh, a range of, you know, post-margin grass-select herbicides uh, for weed control in chickpeas. And in, recently, there was a four herbicides registered in chickpeas. One is a grass-selective pre-margin, ultra or carbitamide, group E. And then last year, we got a new herbicide for broadleaf weed control is uh, Femisofen, or brand name is uh, Reflux, and also Terrain, which is again group J, uh, it is a uh, flumioxazin is a chemical name, and then uh, we also have a ready mix uh, mix of you know terbutalazine and isooxoflutol, which is you know the turbine and balance or palmiro mix. You know, so those those are the sort of you know new herbicides registered on chickpeas in the recent years, and we did actually two trials last year to check you know efficacy of these herbicides in mixture with other herbicides in comparison with the old herbicide old herbicide mixtures you know at two places one was Libby group site uh, near Delvalnu and other one was with the MIG group at Minginu. yeah so if we talk about the results we got another thing is you know we are talking about Mark, uh, Mark said you know the new variety captain has a higher plant height so we thought it is better to check you know whether plant, higher plant height or tolerant plants, they have any advantages in terms of crop competition or crop uh, weed suppression compared to earlier varieties. So we included Nilam from that angle, which is the W bred variety, old variety farmer they used to grow here. And uh, what we found actually, when you compare 
in the untreated controls, though we kept wheel free growing captain and Neil side by side, we didn't find any advantage of height in terms of weed suppression. So both the varieties, they produce similar sort of weed biomass, similar number of, you know, weeds. And then uh, even the yield loss was very similar in both varieties. There was one sort of thing we actually very clearly get out of those two trials. And then both these trials, they were actually sown after, you know, sown wet after, you know, good rainfall in May. So trial at uh, Libby site was sown 12th of May and at MIG site that was sown on 25th of May. So both they were sown wet. And what we did actually, we because uh, we were told that both the sites are fairly weed free. So to mimic or to copy wild radish, we spread actually RR canola hybrid seed in each plot targeting three to five plants per meter square to get sort of competition and see what sort of efficacy we can get spores on wild radish, but that was actually on canola. So in terms of efficacy, majority of the, you know, the new herbicides like, you know, reflux or train or Palmyro TX, they were actually, and, and the old herbicides, simazine, terbithalazine, bladex, those sort of, you know, cyanazine, they were all given 95 to 100% control of canola or you can say radish. But one thing we picked up that at Libby site, because uh, there was a lot of rain last year, and we noticed that the furrows, they were, you know, the seeding furrows, they were filled within a month or so. I noticed actually one, after one and a half month, the furrows, they were almost filled. But at big site, even there was a quite good rain after seeding, the furrows, they were intact. There was no furrow filling happened. And what we noticed that at Libby site, reflux, applied post-seeding pre-emergent at 1.25 liter per hectare rate, which is the maximum label rate, that actually caused very serious yield loss, almost at a par with the untreated control or that was weedy control and less than weed-free control. But at mix site, there was no effect. So that the clear sort of you know message is that if you're expecting heavy rainfall soon after application or post-seeding pre-emergent application, then likely you will get crop damage. Or yield loss. And interestingly, efficacy of, you know, on say canola or radish was comparatively less than if you apply before seeding. And the interesting part is that because that was the canola we seeded or we were targeting radish, I think PSP application of reflux according to Syngenta is only maybe has advantage if we have a weeds like South Isle or Fleabane, which are maybe very small seeded, very light seeded. But if you're targeting wild radish or we are targeting, say, comparatively biggest weed seed weeds, then maybe not any advantage. So that was, you know, the PSP application can be damaging when we can expect some soil movement or herbicide movement or furrow filling after seeding with the rain or maybe even wind. Yeah, and so and that's something that the farmers are really going to have to judge for themselves based on, uh, uh, you know, what they know their soil type are like. Absolutely. Otherwise, you know, most of the... And other thing... We noticed that in uh, reflux treatments, terrain treatments, and their mixtures with other herbicides, there was a you know here and there few survivals of uh, canola, and there was no that they are not going to affect grain yield, but they are returning weed seeds in the seed bank, and that can be a problem in you in in the systems. You know. But when I talked to Syngenta, and that, that's their observation, and I think they, they, there's observation in Europe as well. Control of or, or wild radish is more susceptible to reflux than canola and especially hybrid canola. Mm. So in that sense, we put actually these herbicide mixtures under maybe more tougher conditions or maybe worst case scenario. 
So hopefully, if that's true, then I think uh, those mixtures, they will control radish very nicely and shouldn't be any problem. But we found, you know, here and there, there was a few plants in each plot. They were surviving, you know, uh, from these mixtures, you know. And also, you know, when I said, you know, most of the triazines, you know, like uh, simazine, terbutalazine, cyanazine, they performed very well because there was a very good soil moisture last year and they actually do very well under moist conditions. That brings us to the end of part one of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation so far and be sure to jump onto part two now to continue listening to Mark, Nathan and Hamahinda talk chickpeas in Paddock Chat episode 45, part two.